Well, I think the first thing you have to decide is what are the most important things for yourself, right? Um, if it's the case that everybody has the right to make sense of things, the right and obligation to make sense of things. That is the voice of best-selling author Ray Dalio. He'll be giving us advice on how we can make better decisions as well as pattern recognition so we can lead happier and healthier lives. That is all coming up on today's SuperU podcast. That's one small step for man. Lift off. We have a lift off. We choose to go to the moon, not because they are easy, but because they are I have a dream. You can't handle the truth. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Super, 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 super. Super you. Welcome to today's Super You Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Quammen. A lot of you know me as Equal Man. Sorry for the audio quality. It's actually coming from Two Pillows. That's right. I'm recording this between Two Pillows and, of all places, Saudi Arabia. And we'll get that in a second. But probably wondering, why the heck do you record between Two Pillows when you don't have your microphone? The reason is, if you do not, it bounces off the ceiling. What bounces off the ceiling? The sound. It's a reverb. So I just tested it out because sometimes you want to be sitting comfortably. But I'm laying on the bed and have a couple of pillows tented up here in Saudi Arabia. Actually, Alula. Saudi Arabia. If you haven't heard of it, neither did I before I came to this beautiful place. It is a magical place. So definitely do yourself a favor and Google A-L-U-L-A, Alula Saudi Arabia. I was here to give a keynote speech or actually sit on a panel at this conference. It's kind of their Sun Valley conference for the Middle East. Um, and it's just incredible. It's my first time in Saudi Arabia. And just like America, Amanda Gorman said, and rightfully so, check out her podcast that we did on the Subaru Podcast with Amanda Gorman. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. Just like America's a work in progress and so is Saudi Arabia, most of you didn't, probably don't know this because I didn't before I visited here. Uh, they really started to open up the country in 2018. So the progress they've made here is quite incredible. And all I can say is the people are wonderful. Everyone I encounter, the hospitality is unbelievable. And the beauty of this country is unparalleled. When you think about Alula, once you Google it, you'll see it's kind of a combination of the Grand Canyon and also Bryce Canyon. If you ever been to Utah. So it's just it's just incredible setting in this desert. It's an oasis. So actually the event where I was speaking was at an oasis. So they brought together basically all these people from all over the world. So we had Vietnam represented. We had uh, Norway, you know, across the board, Uruguay, incredible, incredible set of people uh, here in Saudi Arabia. But uh, I can't speak enough about the people here uh, in the beauty of this country. Obviously, just like America, a work in progress, but it's just amazing to see that they've opened things up, got people, they're inviting people in. Um, so it's just great to be here almost like untouched. Some of the places you go are, are literally almost untouched. So just, just incredible, incredible sights. But today, I'm super excited for the podcast today because uh, we're going to we're gonna get some information and insights from Ray Dalio. If you're not familiar with Ray Dalio, it'd be hard to not be familiar with him because he's literally everywhere. His book has blown up. His books actually have blown up. Uh, and Ray, as you might know, he's an American billionaire, investor, and head fund, head fund manager, has served as a co-chief investment officer of the world's largest hedge fund. You've probably heard of Bridgewater Associates. He founded Bridgewater in 1975 in New York. Uh, his innovations are regarded as some of the best 
best in the industry. And he's popularized many commonly used practices such as risk parity, currency overlay, portable alpha, and global inflation index bond management. If you don't know what that is, I don't either, but it's definitely industry leading if you're in that space for all the folks that listen from the investment world. Uh, Dahlia was born in New York City and he started investing in stocks at the age of 12 before eventually going on to receive an MBA from Harvard Business School in 1973. And then two years later, in his apartment, Dahlia launched Bridgewater. So that's crazy. And Dahlia is the author of the 2017 book, Principles, Life and Work, about corporate management investment philosophy. It was featured on the New York Times bestseller list. His most recent book is The Changing World Order, which I'm currently reading. So Ray Dahlia has been married for more than 40 years to his wife, Barbara. The couple has four adult sons together. His wife is an ancestor of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, uh, of Vanderbilt fame, of course, the Vanderbilts. And for those playing the height game, Dahlia Dalio is five foot nine. Beyond thrilled to get insights from Ray Dalio today. Every, everything happens over and over again. All right. Everything, um, I, we think of this as everything's another one of those. So uh, by being able to look at history and make the connections and examine how the mechanics of the cause-effect relationships are, that's what we spend a lot of time doing. And then we convert those rules, those principles into algorithms. So through the day, I'm doing that uh, mostly and reflecting uh, on, on mostly on the markets uh, with interesting people. And we debate a lot. Um, so, um, and, and that'll carry through the day. Uh, I'm very um, stepping back. I'm much more um, like to go to kind of a, what I might describe as a higher level. There's, there's the blizzard that everybody's normally in. And that's where they're caught with all these things coming at them. And I prefer to go above the blizzard and just organize. Uh, so I'm, it's, it's, uh, organized that way. I, I, I also should say that I meditate. So bef- I, I started my day when you gave me the uh, question as I started my business day. I should say I also find that meditation has been fantastic and I do that regularly. So, um, I want to always maintain, uh, an equanimity. Um, not get caught in the blizzard to try to be more strategic. And so um, I don't, I manage that. Now, Ray, when you got out of Harvard and two years later, you start Bridgewater Associates and you learn some very valuable lessons in those early years. Like a lot of the folks that we have on the SuperU podcast, those early years are very formative. There's a lot of mistakes that are made. In particular, you shifted your mindset from always thinking you're right to another form of framework that you still use to this day. What is that framework? So from 1975 until 1982, 82 is the period. Can you imagine this was seven years of building a business, making a lot of good and bad decisions, but many more good ones and bad ones and built up my little business. And then in 1982, um, I had calculated that a number of countries would not be able to pay back their debts to American banks. And the American banks had 250% of their capital out to them in loans. So they were going to go bankrupt. And this was a very controversial point of view. I mean, people, I thought we're going to have an economic uh, collapse and because the banks wouldn't collapse. And then what happened is, um, lo and behold, on August 1982, Mexico defaults on its debts. And people started to see this. And that led me to getting a lot of attention. So I was put on 
Wall Street week, I was um, asked to testify to Congress to help them understand this debt crisis and so on and so forth. And I thought we were going into a depression. And this was the worst economy ever. And it turned out, if you look at the exact bottom in the stock market, August 1982, when Mexico defaulted, that was the exact bottom in the stock market. And that's because then the uh, Federal Reserve printed money and did and eased interest rates and so on and so forth. But that was totally wrong. So I lost clients. And it cost me money. And I uh, had to let everybody I uh, who worked with me go. And we were a very tight group of people. So it was like losing extended family. I was so broke that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to go to work for somebody else or am I going to work through this? And this, um, so it was a, you know, terrible experience, but it turned out to be maybe the most valuable experiences or one of the most valuable experiences of my life because it changed my approach to decision making. I went from thinking, you know, I'm right to asking myself, how do I know I'm right? In other words, how do I triangulate? It gave me the humility I needed to balance with my audacity. And so then it gave me an open-mindedness. And from that point forward, everything was better. We can get into but what, what changed. Uh, that raised my probabilities of being right and managed and allowed me to manage risk. So for that point forward, you know, everything became better really um, until today. In your book, Principles, you lay out how you approach difficult decisions, which for many readers has been an incredible tool and one of the reasons why it shot up the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, but can you walk us through that as well? I got into an, an exercise that I'd recommend for everybody out there. Um, whenever you're f making a decision that's an important decision, um, you're used to just making that decision and moving on. I developed an exercise that I would write down my criteria for making those decisions. So that would be my principles, and which are these those written principles, which are really what is in the book mostly. So one by one, how do I make that decision? What are the cause-effect relationships? So when another one of those comes along, I remember it and I you know, communicate it. And this has been invaluable to me also in dealing with people because we could deal with each other better. I can have those stress tested. It's reasonable. You look at that and you say, if this thing came along, would you do this it the way I'm describing? Would you operate by that principle? And you can have back and forth and refine the principles. Then that leads one to think in a principled way rather than in the snowstorm that you're right. talking, this yep. blizzard of everything that comes at people. Instead, it's like you look at everything and you see everything as another one of those. So like a duck or a species, right? right? You think, okay, what species is it? How do I deal with that species in the most effective way? And then I found out that I could put those into algorithms. In other words, that you know, starting 30 years ago, I was able to say, if I have that criteria, you know, we call them formulas then. Now they're algorithms. But we, I would write down, if, if this happened, then do this. And I would write that down. And then I learned how the computer could be a partner. And so it changed everything by writing that those principles down and then also putting them to algorithm. It changed my relationships with people. It changed. It allowed us to have an idea of meritocracy. 
Like many of those that we have on the show, you are a strong believer in a meritocracy that those that perform the best should be rewarded, should rise to the top. However, meritocracies aren't easy to instill or manage, uh, but you figured out over time there are three key components for a meritocracy to work. What are these three components? An, an, an idea meritocracy is when the best ideas win out. And the way that you have to have it, there are three steps that you have to do. First, you have to put your honest thoughts out there. A lot of people have problems doing that, but you have to you have to welcome others doing it and you have to do it so you have to put them on the table to look at them. Second, you have to have thoughtful disagreement. In other words, the ability to take in and have a back and forth in a quality way so that you can make better decisions than you could make individually. And we have protocols for doing that that are described in the book. And then third, you have to have ways that if disagreements remain, that you think are fair, appropriate, agreed upon ways of getting past that disagreement. Because not everybody's going to get what they want. And the, the problem that most people have at that point is that either there is an autocratic decision maker or a democratic decision maker. Neither of those work well. The autocratic decision maker is just the guy who's the boss who says, okay, well, now I'm going to do this. That's a problem because there, others don't own it. And how do you know that you're right? You can't be arrogant. And then there's democratic decision making. And that means everybody has the same votes, the same opinion. That's not sensible because they have different merits to that. So if you have an idea meritocracy, you have to know also the merit of people's thinking. And so we go through the process of being able to identify in fair ways, in ways that we all agree to, of ways of knowing what's the merit of each thing. And we literally have scores of these um, tests and whatever they are that become the scores. So we have believability-weighted voting. So, I mean, literally, if, if I'm running something and we're in a group and three people who have higher levels of believability than I do – uh, think that uh, it should be one thing, and I think it should be something. Um, there's going to be a questioning back and forth. I put myself in the mode of a learner so that I can take in and then make the best decision. You have to know that the best decision that you can make isn't necessarily the one that you're attached to that's in your head. That's idea of meritocratic decision-making. Now, speaking of advice, what advice would you give to our younger listeners that are seeking maybe their first job? Uh, and in the same vein, what advice for some of our older listeners who are looking to maybe switch careers, uh, mix things up, or simply re-energize their existing career? Well, I think the first thing you have to decide is what are the most important things for yourself, right? Um, if it's the case that everybody has the right to make sense of things the right and obligation to make sense of things. Now, if you're in an environment that doesn't allow that, doesn't allow you to ask questions and do those explorations, um, for me, you know, frankly speaking, I couldn't do that. I, I just couldn't do that. For somebody else, that may not be a problem. So you have to decide for yourself first, you know, is what what is the right environment? What do you like? What's, what's important? If it's a really high, important thing to you, um, uh, then you will find it. It may not be at that job. It may be at the next job. It may not be 100% exactly the way you want it. It may, But it, you can find a by and large way of, of, of finding it. And it's not just the organization you're with. It's the relationships you're in. Uh, 
Because this doesn't end up just with your organization. It's like if you're having a partner. How do you deal with your partner? Your, uh, it could be a spouse. It could be anybody. How are, how do you, de- what's your relationship? How are you going to get past the disagreement? So it's the same three questions. Can you put your honest thoughts on the table to look at together? Can you have thoughtful disagreement on how to get past them? And when you disagree, do you have an ability to, what is your mechanism to getting past that disagreement? Do the principles that bind you together, are they more important than the ones that divide you? What are your principles? These same things apply in personal relationships as well as uh, work relationships. How important are truthful conversations, especially on a person or team's particular weaknesses, not their strength, but conversations around particular weaknesses? In one fashion or another, you first have to bring it up. I mean, so let's just imagine you didn't have tech tools, but you have five people in a in a company, a startup. The most basic thing, you don't need the tech tools, is the question of how you're going to be with each other, right? So if you, can I ask you any questions? Can I probe you? Can we see how it is? After a while, you're going to know what you're like and you're going to discuss it. You You typically... Don't have that understanding because you don't talk about a lot. You've got these scenarios going in your head, and that other person's got those scenarios. But because there's not actually truthful conversation and exploration of evidence, um, you, you you have problems. So even when there's disagreement, we we have uh, about you know what somebody's like. The fact that we can establish, and anybody can establish, sort of tests. Okay. Let's try this and see how that goes and see how well you do. What can we agree are objective criteria? And then um, we don't know what's true until uh, we pretty much reach an agreement ourselves. So if somebody's, you know, you know, there's no disagreement about strengths. We have very little disagreement about people saying you have a strength. Where you typically have disagreement is about people having a weakness. And if the person then says, oh, I recognize that I now have that weakness, that's the point we have to reach that we agree on it. Because if we still don't agree on it, well, then we say, how do we solve that together? So that there are lots of ways that individuals can I'd operate in idea meritocratic ways without tools. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's one of the, one of the philosophies that we have on the show and, and at Equal Man Studios is that we we don't necessarily want your weakness to become a strength. We just want to shore up that weakness so it's not a liability. We just want to play to people's strengths, but we just want to shore that weakness up so it's not a liability. Now we think about alternatives. Why is it important for us to see the alternatives, an alternative way of doing things, or even an alternative way of life? I think a lot of us get set in our ways, especially now in the political climate. It's like, you're you're wrong, I'm right. But why is it important in business and also life when we think about where the world is today that there's just like, I'm, gonna, I'm just not going to listen to you. I'm just going to go with my way or the highway. Why is it important? Why is the key to success to always look and see alternatives? Well, I think the first thing, the reason I wrote the book, um, you know, I'm at a stage of my life and I want to pass it along, is to ha- the first stage is to have people actually be able to visualize what is it like? What is that alternative what does it like? Look like? Yeah. Okay? And if you can visualize it and you say, I intellectually want it, and that the only thing that's standing in my way of having it 
is these emotional reactions. And now I have to develop the muscles, you know, and that discipline to just get myself over those moments so that I can have it. That's the most important thing. Our whole environment does not lend itself to knowing what that alternative way of operating is. So I hope to paint it in that book so that people can see that what that alternative is like. If you see the alternative, you intellectually, you'll probably want it. And if you you'll want it, you'll do it. Man, incredible insights, incredible advice. My favorite insight was around weaknesses that you have to identify them and have those uncomfortable conversations around them. You don't have to make them a strength. You just have to make them not a liability. So thank you to our listeners for joining us for today's Super You podcast. That was advice and insights from Ray Dalio. Check out his books. They're New York Times bestsellers for a reason. Uh, thank you for turning in the Super You podcast. The show's not possible without you, and it certainly isn't possible without the great work of Maritza Gutierrez, Jake Brin, and also Kelsey Gomez, who had to stitch together this show because I'm traveling so much right now and again i'm in saudi arabia making my way back from saudi arabia uh so again hopefully the audio quality is halfway decent uh this is equal man coming to you from two pillows in alula saudi arabia reminding all of us that we are all superheroes we just need that courage to wear the cape and also that it's cool to be kind and then last but certainly not least it is not what we take from the world it is what we leave behind so please join us for next week's super you podcast i hope you enjoyed this one as well seven Six, five, four, three, two, one. Super, 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 super you. 